Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have a great guest with us, Noor van Boven. She is founder at Invested, but also chief people officer at N26, one of the largest fintech uh, companies that I know about, a, a bank. Uh, she was also VP Global Head of People at SoundCloud. She's worked at companies like Dell. She's really experienced in HR, as well as being board member at a ton of startups. Uh, a lot to share, especially because you're coming from, even though you're Dutch and living in the same country as us, uh, you do most of your startup and tech experience in Berlin, which is one of the biggest hubs in the world currently. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. Cool. Maybe you can explain a little bit about yourself to our audience and where they might know you from. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for the intro, uh, Lova. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, like I spent my time between Berlin and Amsterdam, although uh, being Dutch, I do call Berlin as my uh, current home. I absolutely love the city. And maybe we could talk about that a bit more because in the last seven years, and it started already before I saw Berlin completely explode um, from a startup and entrepreneurial uh, scene. Uh, in general, like uh, I'm working in HR now for 20 years, so I've seen it grown from like the more soft skill uh, employee support to really being a, a critical business function and also uh, being perceived that way. I had the luxury to work quite international, which uh, aligns very well with my passion of travel. Um, so I've been lucky to, to do the Transiberia Express, but also traveling in Central and South America, quite a bit of uh, Central Asia. So I hope after our Corona times that, that at least the traveling scene will uh, revive again uh, because I can't wait to go and explore more of the world. Uh, for now, I can also digitally combine it by working very internationally. So at least my passion for working with different cultures um, uh, is very much still alive. One of the things uh, I was really excited to ask you is uh, when we had our get to know call, um, you mentioned about the fact that you work and then you take like these gap years or gap months and then you travel and yeah. then you go back to work and everything uh, fits very well with what I imagine of people in Berlin doing. But still, it's, it's like really interesting to me how you combine such an interesting career because you've been going from, you know, the corporates I saw, you've worked at Dell and Deloitte and everything, going to these huge scale-ups that are growing intensely. How do you just interrupt your career and plug back into this whole tech scene? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think um, um, looking back, it looks almost like there's a pattern to it. I don't think that in the moment it felt like a that there was like a meta plan behind it. It was just more, um, uh, I always say like uh, my, my biggest opportunity and like my biggest strength, but also my biggest pitfall is that I only have two levels and it's like 400% in or 0%. But if you always act on 400%, whether that's in a large corporate or in a startup and you drive massive projects and, and working 24-7, you also run out of energy at one point in time or, the, or a need to like quick have a complete switch. At least that's how it works with me. So I had that already early in my career where I took the opportunity after um, my time at the Human Capital Group to go on a sabbatical for three and a half months 
Um, but after my time at Dell, where I did like big reorganizations and restructuring, I took a year off to go traveling in uh, South America. I actually left for indefinite time. Like I, I wanted to have the freedom to see when I would go back. Um, and that turned out to be a full year. Um, of course, every time that you do something like that, you're taking a risk. Um, and especially when I took a full year off, um, was in the midst of a crisis, of an economic crisis. So a lot of people told me, like, you're nuts. Like, you're having this great career. Now you're doing this. And like, what are you going to do when you don't find a job and you come back? And in the basics, I always believe, like, I have a brain that functions. Uh, I'm not lazy. So there will always be a thing, right? Like, that I can do when I come back. And that always, like, just having that trust... Um, uh, help me fly and I have been lucky but I do think that luck is always also a product of something that you put in yourself um, that when coming back from my trips that companies also realized that I gained a lot of experience I do have to say in all honesty though that when I went like backpacking for a full year I, and I was interviewing with Tom Tom. There was actually four previous manager from Dell who was working there. Um, and he did tell me later that he said, you did have a lot of the backpack flow still going around in the interviewing process. And it did help that we knew how you were working at uh, Dell before. So there's definitely, you need to get back in the rhythm when you like make that life shift. Um, but in the end, you gain so much from it because it's, Like by having those years of doing something completely different, um, tapping into yeah, different aspects of how you're wired that are also beneficial for the play. So it's about being super resourceful, being really curious, being creative in different ways, like activating those parts of you in times throughout your career when, when maybe they're not so explicitly uh, in your job, I think is always beneficial for everyone. Um, and like later in my career, I've been able to combine it. And now that I founded my own company, I hope that I can even take that to the next level where I can say, okay, I work for different companies. I work globally anyway. I might work for a while from the US or I might work for a while from South Africa or wherever I want to be at that moment in time. I like what you said um, that, you know, Well, what it shows me your answer is that there's a very comforting mentality, almost a mindset that I feel doesn't happen overnight. So I guess the question then is, how how were you raised? How was your childhood? Did your parents do something special with you that you're so confident or how did it all go? Um Yeah, it, it's, uh, I'm not sure that I'm confident on every aspect, right? Um, but the only thing that I, I always learned is like, if you work hard and you try, there is a way where you will work it out. And um, uh, I come from a family with four children and we're all wired to that way. So I have asked my, and we all work a lot. So we all enjoy working. We always find work. Um, we always find joy in work. It helps if you have that. I don't think that that's only upbringing. That's probably also in your uh, genetics. Um, and I always ask my parents, like, what did you do? Like, did you encourage us as, like, children to go work? Uh, and my mom said, no, the only thing we 
did is never discourage you. So whenever one of the children came home with a shitty job that was like 40 minutes away where they would have to drive in the evenings to get you there and the, the gas would be more expensive than the money we would make, they would still say, that's amazing, honey, we're going to do that and just let us do it and supporting us to get it, right? So, and we were always very um, uh, active in finding silly jobs, right? And and they never, uh, my mom had another good examples. I grew up in the south of the Netherlands where there are a lot of farmers. And uh, in the summertime, you could get, make quite some money with some of the farmers, especially if you're like 13 or 14, you were not really allowed to work, you would go there anyway. She would come down on Sundays and we would just be gone with a note like, hey, we're working at the farmer. And then when we would come home, we were wearing our best clothes all day in the field, right? And then, but we never got punished for that. She always just was proud of us of doing that. So I think it's more being um, encouraged and supported and that it's safe to take action and do whatever you do. And that at least... Even when you're in enthusiasm doing something that is not perfect or it has some side effects, that those side effects are always good because those side effects are worth taking the risk or the shot or acting on opportunities that you're seeing. So what was the first job you ever had and how old were you? Oh, um, I have to think we did so many things that I don't know that I know the, the sequence. Maybe like the most interesting job that you remember as first. Yeah, the most, the weirdest job was probably um, uh, in, I remember like a factory where we, we had to work like big machines to put big sheets in and it would like auto fold and those machines would then catch fire and we... Of course, then we had to be removed from that because that's, of course, not allowed. But we were just counting our money and we were like, to fix the machine, like we need to uh, fold them. And then a week later, I would work at an ice cream shop and my brothers and sisters and I would have like all these um, bringing newspaper around and folding them. My sisters are eight years younger. So then my brother and I would have them as our staff. And they would fold the commercial magazines in the newspapers, which they officially were not allowed. And we would pay them and then bringing it around. My dad hated it because, of course, every the whole house was always full with newspapers because we did the Wednesday ones, the weekend ones, the daily ones. So, and then in the summer, yeah, always those farmers work. Like there were always activities and work that we came up. I don't know what the, the first one was, but we were very creative with our age and the brothers and sisters to help each other to work as soon as possible. So when uh, when you started like graduating, how how did you know what you wanted to do and how did your career kind of start? Like what studies did you choose? Did you already know from the beginning or were you very much exploring at 18? No, I had, I had no clue. Like I am uh, I'm excited about everything. That's um, that's a, a a blessing, but also a curse. And many times I can tell you, I think well, from a child, I never have enough time in a day, right? So it's also with um, with the whole lockdown and days off. Friends of mine are saying, "What are you doing all day?" Now, I I don't think I ever had a day where I thought, "What am I doing?" Like I never have enough hours. There are always ideas. 
But then if you're 18 and you have to choose, make a choice for life, that's a very big question to ask for people who like everything. Like I literally went from like, do I want to be a dentist? Do I want to be a software engineer? I want to go to art school. Like in that variety, the ideas would come by. Um, so I studied the first year and I studied marketing. I thought I can still go all the way. Um, but I moved to a student city where there are also a lot of other exciting activities. So I started hundreds thousands of different activities there. So then I had to quit my um, uh, study and uh, work for half a year. That it has to do with uh, uh, the governmental setup in the Netherlands. And then the second year, of course, I did have to make a good choice. Like you cannot just swap around studies. Uh, and I couldn't find my direction. So in the end... Um, my dad hates this story because he comes across as a very uh, dominant man. But for me, it was the best thing ever. He came back and he said, you're going to study human resources. Um, it's a good study. It has an economic background. You like being with people. You have a, you're uh, empathetic. I think it will fit you. Just do this. And then after those four years, you can do whatever you want with your life. But you're now going to finish a study. Like, that's it. Um, and I was not really keen on that study, I have to say, but it was relatively, I found the study relatively easy and I thought, okay, I'll do that and then I'll figure out my own plan. Like, I just need to have the paper, get my parents off my back and then I have all the freedom in the world. And then in my third year, I had to do an internship and working is very easy for me, like that I naturally will find my path. That, by the way, would be my advice to a lot of people who don't know what they want to do. Just start somewhere in a company. Make sure that you don't make a decision that cuts off too many corners. And you will find your path in, in a way. Um, but I did my internship at IBM. And I ended up in an international department. And I arrived in, like, and I mean, this is 20 years ago. IBM was back then quite leading in international HR. They were a tech company. They were quite ahead of the curve. And I was talking with people all around the world, even though I was an intern. And that just changed my whole dimension. Like, all of a sudden, that study wasn't the biggest um, uh, nightmare in the world and only for a paper. This was what I was going to do with it. So in my fourth year, I actually stayed with them um, and graduated. I did my uh, thesis also with IBM. And then the day after I got my diploma, I went to New York for, um, for IBM. So I got the opportunity to work from there. Um, so in the end, like even though it was my dad's last resort of like, let's make sure that she at least gets a diploma and she can do whatever she wants. Um, that study has been super defining, of course, for the rest of my career because I always stayed in international HR. So how can you continue the story? Like you went to New York just like that. Uh, like uh, yeah. how did it all go? And, and well, first of all, how is it like just like that moving to New York, which is a dream for many people? Yeah, it is. But I have to say, like... I got excited again, but not really thinking about the reality. That happens more often. Um, I First of all, I thought I had made it. I was like 21. This is 20 years ago. It was not so... I think now it's easier for people to go to New York than back then. It was a bit less common. It was a bit more special. Um, but I also completely underestimated it. Like, I didn't have 
that it wasn't that in my surrounding everyone was just going and living abroad. Um, but I lived there. I I arrived there, and um, uh, in that big city. And then the second day, I was literally walking in a suit. I also can't imagine that now, <laughs> right now. But then I had to walk in a suit on Fifth Avenue. And I remember only thinking, oh, my God, I made it. Like, there's nothing else I have to do in life. Like, I just did it at 21. Um, of course, there's way more in life than walking in a suit on Fifth Avenue, which now would be my first nightmare, actually. Um, but it was so cool. Like, I only knew it from... Uh, the movies, but it was also really tough uh, because it was the first, I mean, in the end, I came from like um, a relatively small town in the south of the Netherlands, growing up super protective, then going studying in Utrecht, in a student home, like everything was organized and all of a sudden you're alone in New York. And then the day before I left, that was a that was really tough. The people where I was going to have a room to live called and declined it uh, and told me that I wouldn't have it. So I had to organize that while I was in New York. So I was staying in like a youth hostel, which I had never done before, um, to organize that. Um, and I can tell you, like, that must have been horrible for my parents that like the first days I was calling them, like crying, like, what am I doing? Like, this city is super big. So during the day, I felt like the coolest person on earth. And in the evening, I was like, how, how is this going to be my life? Um, it, but of course, you find a cool room, you, you meet new friends. And then, like, so that's then the first two, three days are a harsh landing. I found that very often, by the way, I've now lived in so many um, cities. Like, I always find the first week the toughest because, like, you don't, you have zero routine. Like, for me, it helps when you at least have the routine that you know where to go, where to get your groceries, like, just the basics of life. Um, but after that, that New York time was amazing. Like, I think I slept for 84 hours in a row when I came back because I hardly slept when I was there because it was working. And then that city just continues 24-7. So every day people were exploring stuff. You're 21, like I had energy of a lifetime. So I wanted to do it all. Um, so yeah, that was remarkable. Um, and work was super interesting, like, like uh, especially back then, was a bit more at the, um, not completely the beginning, but like the really internationalization and globalization, like we know it now, that was then starting to boom. Uh, but was really driven by those big American companies. So I was there in the heart of Americans talking about the rest of the world, um, uh, equalizing that a bit similar to one state in the US. But um, uh, uh, I even got questions like, how, nor, how does the rest of the world uh, talk about that? Just coming from the Netherlands, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I only know the Netherlands. But yeah, that experience was amazing. Like for me, it was very clear. Like I want to have this. It's so intense to live abroad. So your highs are super high. Your lows are also really low. Um, but the experience overall is always worth it. Um, uh, so like after a while I came back, like it was an assignment for a specific, a specific moment in time. I did know like, okay, I'll go back. But I will be traveling or working abroad very soon so again. How long were you in New York? 
uh, almost a year. Oh, wow, that's a long assignment. Yeah, can I just genuinely ask uh, out of interest, how, how fast did you find that room eventually and how much did it cost? Because the prices were different back then. Yeah, oh, uh, I can't remember what it cost. I know that I got like a heart attack. That was actually a quite funny thing. I haven't thought about this for a long time. It was quite... So there you get in uh, the US back then, I got like um, uh, a check every week. And then I had to go to a check office because like um, uh, I didn't have a bank uh, account there. And it was also very difficult because then you had to set it up separately and with your visa and for the time that I was there, because it was a little bit less than a year, um, uh, it wasn't worth to set up a whole bank account. And um, so I would get that money. But for me, of course, coming from the Netherlands, I got paid on New York standard. So the amount that I got paid for a week was what I would get like in a month or two months in the Netherlands. And you have to imagine I was 21. So the only salary I was used to is like uh, 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 internship allowance, right? Um, uh, and working on the side. So the amounts were amazing. I was really impressed with that. But then I remember going to look for a house and getting an absolute heart attack about what you had to pay for uh, a monthly amount for a room. So I did live quite high up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood in New York, which my colleagues back then got a heart attack about, but I had, had great fun there. And um, uh, But I had to go really in the station where I had to pick up my salary that was closest uh, to my home, was in Harlem. So you have to imagine that this 21-year-old Dutch girl in Harlem every Friday in the middle would go to the check office to exchange their IBM check. And then I would get it in a small brown envelope. But then I was scared to go with it on the streets. So I would put it like in my pants walking out there in the neighborhood. Yeah, crazy. I, I would never do that right now. And back then it was like, that was my rhythm. And then I stocked the money in my suitcase, everything <laughs> that was left. And then I brought that back to the Netherlands. Yeah, so weird, actually, that I, like, I, I can't even imagine how I would do that right now. And also now you have all the payment services to not organize it in this way. But that's how I did it, yeah, 20 years ago. So what did you get out of that internship? And when you came back, how did everything change? Uh, it changed me a lot because, of course, um, uh, what happens is that in that year when you come back, um, you have gained so much impressions and experiences um, and when you go abroad, and it, it changes over time, right? So, for example, I'm now in Berlin for seven years. In the first three years, you have that same dynamic of living abroad. But when you pause a certain amount of time, it becomes like home. So it's the same as if you would have stayed in your home country. Um, but when you're, in, when you're settled in your home country, really truly settled for years, the, the pace of life is slower. You can still be um, uh, really busy and it's, it's not worse. Um, but the, the, the number of new experiences and expressions and, and um, people that you meet and uh, impressions, yeah, it's really a different way than when you go abroad. Like every day 
surprises will come up and you're triggered in a different way and everything is different. And what I realized for the first time when I came back to New York is you come back to something that is still exactly the same as when you left. But within you, you have accelerated in your growth. Like that growth is not equal to the amount of time that you were gone. That's maybe triple uh, as much of what happened. So I met people from all over the world. Like, uh, for example, I had a, a roommate um, and she came from Rwanda and she had lost her family in the Rwanda war. Her dad was a politician and she herself flew went to the United Nations building, got in there to actually... And then one of the people of the United Nations saved her and brought her to the US and organized an internship with her in IBM. And she later became my roommate. Those stories, as a, as a girl from a small town in the Netherlands, of course, I've heard about it on the news and in school. But meeting someone really coming from there, who then rebuilds her life in New York and is there having the same excitement and experience that I have, but coming with a very different backpack. It is one of those experiences that, yeah, that they form you for life. And, and you're in like a pressure cooker of those kind of experiences. And, and I think what, what is the biggest change for me is that even... In Amsterdam, I would, would um, live and act in a more international environment after that experience because I was actively seeking people with different cultures and different backgrounds because that interests me. Um, but also gives you a different view on how you can contribute to the world and not only like my resume is not a do good resume, um, but you know how in life you can impact people positively and how you, you, you get a better understanding that not every, not, life is not so obvious and the chances and the choices that you have is not so obvious for everyone. And um, that's easily to intellectually understand, but to really get that understanding, it helps to be exposed to people who come from a higher variety of backgrounds. I like that. So after you came back from New York, um, did you have like a, a short break or was it right away like the next thing? Uh, and can you uh, continue your story? Yeah, um, um, one of the things that I was intrigued about was like um, uh, back then was headhunters. That was, that was back then a big thing. You have to imagine... <laughs> It's so different now. LinkedIn was not a thing. So um, we heard about uh, headhunters who would call you in the evening secretly with another job, right? Like, and if a headhunter would call you, you would be the bomb. Yeah, now, you, now you get stalked by 20 emails per week on LinkedIn and uh, all your alarm bells go off. But different era. And I thought, oh, that is really cool. That felt a bit like investigative. Um, so when I came back to the Netherlands, like I, I first wanted to stay with IBM, like I was completely, I drank the cool aid, like IBM was the coolest company uh, ever. I could not imagine that ever in my life I would not want to work there. I did reach that point. Um, but then um, when I couldn't work uh, with IBM, um, my next on the list was, okay, then I want to experience 
headhunting. Uh, so I started working for an executive search for um, uh, as a researcher. That was in the end, for me, like, like not um, long-term the right thing. Um, but I, I did learn a lot of skills there. Like this is really in the, the era where yeah, we would call with fake stories to companies to find out and map out who were high up in the different companies. And that gives you, especially when you're that young and like I graduated, had been in New York, but that was basically my experience. Um, you get to really understand companies, a high variety of jobs, like uh, how people are professionally having impact in different uh, areas. And I was back then not ready to do a more traditional HR role. Uh, but going to those two years, I definitely got more insights of like, okay, I want to work with companies that are in transition, where, where there's a lot of change. Um, I was really missing the international uh, piece to it. Um, so when I got the opportunity, I, uh, I got, I was headhunted, which back then was still then cool, uh, I thought, um, by a competitor of the human capital group, the executive search um, uh, business of that, who were a smaller uh, HR consultant firm. So they did um, a business consulting for all eras, but then I was called for the, for the HR uh, piece to help them set up their um, research department for the executive search. But in exchange, they would help me become a full-rounded HR consultant. Uh, and for them, I worked like, I think, close to seven years because I would go to all these different companies um, and could really make different jobs because then I think like consultancy work helps in parts of your life. Not that you're, if you have a full consultant career, I think you're missing out on stuff. But during consultant times, you do, especially early in your career, you have the opportunity to be elevated in companies that are all in different stages and, and um, experiencing different challenges. So it's another pressure cooker experience where you can jump into different things and learn a lot in a very short period of time. Uh, and I think maybe that's a red thread um, uh, as well. That's having intense experiences, like high pace, high variety of things is very important to me. Uh, and this work, this work suited really well. And then, of course, my last assignment was at Dell, another American tech company. All of that, what I had experienced, came together again because I was still missing that American push and drive for innovation, that very international signature. And um, the nature of tech companies, that I, after Dell, I never wanted to work I knew for sure, like, I don't want to work uh, anymore for or uh, not without uh, tech companies. I think tech companies from all industries are really ahead of the curve of innovation and also internal innovation. So if you look at the HR practices, for example, all the innovation that happens in HR happens first in tech industries. So for me, that's a way more interesting industry to work in. So why, do last think, assignment, uh, why do you think the innovation drive is so high in tech and not in other industries? I think it has to do also with the product cycle. So if you work, for example, in, let's take a very extreme one, 
um, if you work in oil and gas, your planning ahead is like 10 to 20 years, right? So you already know where your competition level is for those years. Like your next phase is in 20 years time. With tech, you can be market leader today, but next year you can have completely lost that positioning. So the drive for innovation and being ahead of the curve is something, is a battle that you need to fight almost like on a monthly basis. And that drives a very different culture. Uh, so that's from the product side. And then the second piece is that you have a, there is already, when I went to IBM, to New York, that was also to contribute to the tech war for talent. That was in 1999, right? So, and now in 2020, we don't like the, the uh, word war anymore, but it's the same challenge to get talent in. This is still the same shortage of tech talent. So that also means that as an employer, you need to be innovating and, and constantly act on the newest way of working that people want to adapt uh, and being very much in touch with what your with your customer, in that case, the, the employee wants. Um, so the speed of the speed and the need for innovation um, is entrained in the culture of those industries. Otherwise, you can survive. Don't you think because um, you compare it to like an oil and gas thing and there you say 10, 20 years. It almost feels to me um, then that there would be way less stress in an, in an industry that is so much slower paced than than obviously tech. Um, do you feel that there's maybe there is an added innovation, of course, but do you think then there's also way more stress within the tech sector? No, I think like I I'm. No, I think there can stress be and pressure. I guess like is there more pressure? Yeah, because uh, well. stress stress can come from many different things, right? Like um, stress can come from time pressure or the, the pressure uh, to innovate. But then it's also about the, the amount of pressure is also is, is what, like, what's dependent on it, right? So, for example, if you lose one deal in... Um, uh, when, you, when you have the opportunity of 100 deals in a year and you lose one opportunity, is a different stress level that if in 100 years you have the opportunity of one deal, like the pressure of that one deal is really, really high. So I think the dynamics of the stress are different, but I don't think that there's more or less stress in different industries. Um, and what about the pressure then? Yeah, it depends a bit. Like the... Like, like, Oh, now with Corona, let's take a very um, uh, time-relevant uh, aspect of it. For me, do, being in HR for a hospital would be less exciting because hospitals have a long-term planning. They know what talent is coming into the market. They know what they need. It's quite steady. People have much more lifetime employment kind of contracts with their employers. I think working in healthcare is the most stressful job you can have, right? So there is a, because the, also the, the, the impact of the daily work is so extreme high and like there's literally lives dependent on it. That's a very different stress level 
uh, then whether I can hire those 400 backend developers that we really need in six months time. Um, so then, uh, sorry, you I interrupted, but can you continue your story as you got into Dell and then you got reignited again by that uh, passion? So, but yeah, so then, um, um, and they all super fun time. That was really great. But like what also happens with American. Uh, what were you uh, doing again at Dell? Can you like explain? I, I was the HR manager for uh, Dell, the Netherlands in the first years. And then I moved to an, um, but then you work in an international team, right? So you on a global regional level set the uh, HR direction and then it's implemented in the country. So even though you have a country lead role, it's in an international settings also because like the centers of expertise are then are um, uh, globally organized so you you work in that setting and then i moved to an EMEA hr business partner role and one very um fun role um uh, i didn't necessarily like the role the most i probably learned the most from it but it was an EMEA role where i all the countries had their own HR team, so they're responsible for like literally what happened in the countries. What is an EMEA role? Oh, EMEA is, uh, sorry, Europe, Middle East and Africa uh, for that region. Um, but then I was the connection with the US for a very large um, uh, part of the business and in the midst of a restructuring. And what you have to imagine is that basically, I'm going to simplify it a little bit, um, Basically, Austin would say, okay, that EMEA region, you need to size down by 40% of your employees. <laughs> Just make it happen, and it needs to happen in a month. Well, like, but in our European structure, like, let's, let's forget about the, the um, uh, MIA part of it. Um, just only for Europe, I would then... Now, I could walk, I was in the, the Amsterdam office, I could walk to my um, uh, successor who was running the Netherlands and say, like, okay, it needs to go to the works councils, right? Like, when can, what, what's the earliest date that we can do it? And then you would do it with Norway and with Sweden and with Germany and Belgium. And in France, we wanted to close a whole office. So you get all those plans together. And then I was the one who constantly, of course, the Dutch person had to do that, tell the truth and be direct to the Americans to say, okay, yeah, in France, that's going to be done in 12 months. In the Netherlands, it's three months. In Germany, it's five months. Like in Italy, we cannot execute because there uh, is a minority group involved that we're not allowed to touch, right? And um, for the Americans, that was like very challenging to accept that and and especially in and that's i think that's not only with dell by the way this is with every um large organization um the more distance you are from the reality the more difficult it is to understand and accept the reality so i remember that at one point my boss said about I can't remember which country it was, but it was a country with a works council where we had to go through all the loops and they were getting a bit impatient. He was just, just buy it off. I don't care what it costs. <laughs> and then I was sitting and I was thinking, even if you now give me an envelope with money, I don't even know where to go, right? Like, like where, like we're not Russia. Like there's no, there's no table where I can shuffle around an envelope, right? Um, so that was super interesting. It was also very interesting then to see 
how complex Europe is. And a really interesting that that gets almost uh, political. But what I uh, saw there is also the complexity when you're talking about country labor laws. So, for example, um, and I believe actually during that time, uh, Mark Rutte was um, uh, the Minister of uh, Social Affairs. He's now the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. And uh, he had a proposal to make the labor law in the Netherlands more strict so that it's becoming more difficult to fire people. And like just, I'm just making it very basic now, like of course the law was a bit more complex than that. And of course, when you're having drinks or dinner with your family, everyone thinks that's great, right? Let, let's protect our people because all these foreign companies are coming in and they're just hiring and firing. But the one thing that I had seen from an international perspective is that, for example, in France, it wasn't possible to close one of the offices and it, was a, it requires a waiting time of 12 months. That literally international global companies would say, just start it, and we are not going to invest there anymore. Like any team, any job that we can move around and put in Belgium or we can put in Spain or somewhere else to avoid that, we will do it. So for me, that was really good to learn also the complexity of it, that even if you think you safeguard something in your smaller bubble, your smaller bubble is always part of a larger bubble and can actually really negatively impact your smaller bubble. So there is the, the complexity and the nuance of like, okay, we want to protect, and we want to protect our own citizens while remaining very attractive to invest in us. So we want to give the more flexibility to the outside world, but we don't want to go to an American model where it's a contract that will. We still want to have some protection in play. And so that was very interesting from that piece, but the work itself was very difficult because I was basically, you're basically the messenger of bad news in any direction, right? So that's not the, the, the most fun job, but very, very, uh, a job I learned a lot from. Um, yeah, and then after Dell, I took uh, uh, the sabbatical. Oh, wait, uh, I'm still, still interested in the uh, Dell part. Uh, well, my first question with the whole Dell part is, because you, you, it almost like when we were researching you, um, it almost felt like a huge jump. You went from, you know, these, these like headhunting to suddenly like global head of Dell at the time was like super popular, I think. Um, Sorry, uh, I'm trying to phrase the question, but like, how young were you? Because when we were looking you up, it felt like you were in your 20s still. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was not, of course, I was not a global HR leader eh, for um, uh, Dell. I was just an HR leader for, um, uh, for, for the Netherlands and later for uh, a region for a big chunk of the, the business. Um, how old was I? then probably 27 or something but so how do you get promoted so fast to such a quite important role because um, i know a ton of 27 year olds and i don't see them deciding how to fire 40 percent of all the people in in europe and uh, and middle east and africa do you know what yeah I mean? how, like, how did you progress so fast yeah, I think that, so a few things, a few nuances to it, I don't decide that, right? Like, uh, I guide the business to the process of getting 
to that result, but it would be a bit scary if I would define the exact rules uh, uh, that you don't need as a business. Um, yeah, I probably was yeah late twenties. I must have been older than twenty-seven. I need to calculate that back. Um, but um, uh, I think a few things. So I think that time in consultancy, like like that, I did that really helped because it's it's like a pressure cooker of experiences. So you're getting fast-tracked to different experiences. And the second thing is, Dell is an extremely good school for HR talent. Like if I look now also in the tech scene um, with the key HR leaders in the tech scene, most of them are coming from, uh, from Dell. They invested a lot. So they already very early on said, a, they're completely focused on operational uh, excellence. So already back then, all the HR people uh, had to do Six Sigma. They expected that uh, all the HR leaders truly understand business. So also when I was the HR manager for the Netherlands, there, there was a new, uh, a new GM for the Netherlands, new CEO for the Netherlands came. And he immediately told me, I want to hear you ask smart questions about how we operate financially. So you go sit down with the finance director and make sure that you understand how it works. And so it's a company that gives a lot of room for talent and, and um, um, pushes you up and gives you a lot of opportunities. Um, you had to, especially when you're recognized, and I was very lucky with like the, the uh, management team in the Netherlands, that they made sure that I was recognized internationally for new opportunities. But you also got the push and the support and the training to really take on the opportunity and the responsibility to push your career forward. So what are some like valuable lessons that you got out of that, Del? Like some practical things um, that maybe founders listening now would want to know for their teams? I think the two biggest things, and um, uh, I'm actually when I'm talking to founders, how they, where they should assess HR leaders on, uh, I'm still saying those two things because they're not so obvious for people who are not coming from HR, is business acumen and financial acumen. And that's really hammered in, in Dell, that like as an HR leader, yes, you need to be, innovative about talent programs of course you need to be empathetic and represent the employee voice when uh, and bringing things together but you truly 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 need to understand the business and it's something that's being talked about a lot and um, and people want to have a seat at the table and they want to be recognized for having an impact on the business but truly understanding the business and the financial mechanics behind it is something that you really need to invest in immediately. Like that should, that you should, as an HR leader, when you go into a new company, that should be your core self-education during your onboarding, making sure that you understand that. That's one piece of it. And the second piece, and that's more um, uh, attitude-wise, is don't be scared. Like, don't be scared to ask the questions. Don't be scared to um, uh, get your voice heard, even if it's not about your area. And yeah, maybe with like 10 comments that you make, one 
might not be the smartest one and they might make a joke about it later. But if you pay attention, it happens to everyone. That's completely fine, right? Like, so don't try to avoid that situation. Um, just go in full. How do you, um, well, two-sided question. How do you test that business acumen or financial acumen as a founder trying to hire somebody uh, for HR? But also, if you are an HR person and you're wanting to join a company, how do you like get good at these things? Um, so to start with the first piece, so there are a lot of, especially when working in tech and in software businesses and um, um, uh, especially in like startups and scale-ups, right? Like that's those the, the field that I enter into. If you look at the cost of startup and scale-ups, Likely doesn't matter whether you're in in like what whatever the product of it is, whether you're in healthcare, or you're in work tech. Probably your two biggest cost components are marketing and people, right? Like if you have a highly a big logistic business, it's a bit different. But like those are your two main drivers. That also means that in a startup scale-up world where you will go to massive peaks of like, the sky is the limit, grow, grow, grow. And a year later, it's like, oh my God, bootstrapping now. <laughs> you're, it's easy to cut your marketing budget, right? Um, your marketing leader will scream bloody murder. But like from an, act, from an activity point of view, it's relatively easy. Your people spend is the only other lever that you have that is way more difficult to manage. And it's very, that's easy to test as a founder is when you're talking to HR leaders um, in a phase where you, you have a bit meat on the bone um, and you want to hire your first really senior uh, and responsible HR leader. That should be the first conversations. Like, okay, the sky was the limit. Last year, we've been hiring 100 employees and doubled our organization. And now this year, we need to bootstrap the only lever that I have is employee cost. What will you do? What are the different scenarios? How are we going to have that conversation? And then you will get an immediate feel whether the person will have the default of like, oh, then we need to fire people or that the person has a more, uh, more of a mixture asking you questions around, okay, how did we grow? Did we build in flexibility levels? And what locations are we based? What is the benefits offering? Um, that we have, what are our annual cycles, like what, what is the whole composition of our employee spend, right? So in the, the complexity of the conversation, you will, will see what that understanding is. As an HR leader, to get that understanding much more, the key is to really fully go in like everything is new and ask people to just explain their business, Right? And just say to the people, act like I know nothing. Probably that is true for 95% anyway. What do you do? What does this business do? Because you will get a very different answer from the CTO or the chief product officer or from the chief financial officer. If you have them tell you the full story of the business and what's important and what's at the core of it and how they are contributing to it, you get a much better understanding because of course they will all talk about the same business and can tell the product, but they will all take their own angle. And if you truly listen to all these people, 
Um, that's a good foundation to start working off from. And then the second piece is like if you are in the executive meeting or, or the management meetings, uh, whatever the setup is, making sure that you understand everything. So even when they're talking about a market entry uh, that you don't see immediate employee impact and you don't know what it's about, either in the meeting or afterwards in the meeting with the relevant people, ask them to talk you through it, what's happening. But always make sure that you're not, um, uh, that there's making sure that there's nothing in the core in the organization happening that you don't really understand. Like, and just invest in that. And I think that the more, the more comfortable you get in asking the potential silly questions, the more senior you actually come across, right? Because we, we try to avoid asking the questions when we want to pose senior, while we're not confident about it. Um, but if you're comfortable with your seniority, it's also okay to ask anything. So fake it till you make it. Act like your senior and ask every silly question you can imagine. Maybe a silly question from my end then, because um, can you explain to me what your what like as an HR professional, like w what is it that you do? Because in your entire story, I keep hearing firing people, uh, cutting 40 percent of the people. And, and so it sounds to me almost like uh, when I heard what a, what a vet does, a veterinarian for animals, it's like they love animals, so they become this doctor for animals, but then half of their day they're shooting dogs in the, in the face or something. <laughs> Obviously not <laughs> that way, it's an anecdote. But, yeah. but it feels to me like you love people, but you keep telling me stories about just firing people all the time or like uh, implementing these processes to fire people. Like what does an HR person do at, at least at the level that you are HR? No, yeah, and it's sorry, that's good to you because then I'm not giving the right impression. Um, I do think it's a big part of it as well, by the way. It's like to them, uh, and the reason why I'm giving you the examples is like, that's the hard part of the job. So most part of the learning, of course, happens with the difficult part of what you do. Um, but like the, the biggest thing, like for example, in um, uh, my last job at N26, like we tripled the organization constantly and went to complete hyper growth. Like, and that has been the most challenging career experience I ever had, right? So then it's much more around, in the end, it's always about who are we as an employer? Like externally, but also internally to the people in the good times and the bad times, right? So throughout the entire life cycle for people um, and managing that, managing that, that community experience that we agree on with that larger group. Um, and that means that What are the rules we want to uphold? How do we want to interact with each other? Like, like what is the way? How do we communicate? What is our tone towards each other? Like all those cultural aspects. But also, what are our hardcore agreements around processes? Like, how do I know when I do a good job? How are you helping me to do a good job? What's the whole structure around me knowing whether I'm doing a good job or not? Um, so that piece of it. But then also the organizational piece, which is more around, okay, looking two, three, four years ahead, um, if we need to double, triple, like how are we getting that organization ready 
to grow. Um, and that can be in size, but that can also be international. So, for example, if we are a very successful company in the UK and we now want to extend to Europe, it will be much more uh, difficult in the future. Like, how are we going to do that? Or if we want to hire a lot of tech talent, we cannot always do that in the same location uh, because you need to relocate people. Not everyone wants to live in Berlin, for example. What are alternative plans? It's the HR team that then comes with solutions of like, okay, we want to set up an, uh, a second or third or fourth tech hub in a country. Like, and organizing that full logistics. So all the logistics around the people and organizational operations of a business uh, is done by the HR leader. Um, a question I had is when you start uh, with these like scaling companies and we'll get deeper into that, of course. Yeah. Uh, like what is the minimum amount of people that should be in an HR team you think in order for it to, to work properly? Can one person really like establish everything with no help or, or like is there a minimum amount of people that should be in there? Yeah, that's that's difficult. Uh, you don't like, especially when you're small, you don't need everything at every given time, right? So what's difficult is like, um, for example, if you are a company of 25 people and you're going to double your organization and you're growing to 50, yeah, you don't need a full-time senior HR leader helping you to map out the challenges when you're doubling. That's probably a few hours, right? So then I would advise um, uh, founders to just make sure that you get an advisor in and your board of advisors has a people and organizational background so that you get that advice in, right? Um, you probably do need a recruiter who will help you hire those people. You can also outsource that. Uh, in general, um, then it's a bit bigger, so say from like uh, 200 people on, I would always plan my headcount saying that the total HR team is 5% of your business by the end of the next calendar year. Because we always need to recruit. So if you're now with 200 people and you need 1,000 people by the end of the year, well, that's a lot, like, like let's double to 400. Then you take like um, uh, uh, I would take 5% as fixed employees and then um, uh, see what you can organize with that. And then it has to do with the growth, right? So a lot of the people will go into uh, recruitment. When you're an established corporate, you will have all kinds, where you will put the employees will shift over time. So what there's not really the, the, the efficiency on the 5% is very limited even when you become a corporate because when you're a corporate you might be in 40 countries and all of a sudden you need more country knowledge for example or you have way more sophisticated learning teams and you do all your training in-house so things shift when you're early stage it's admin and recruitment then at one point you want a little bit more of advice then you have so many people that you're like, hmm, maybe someone needs to understand a little bit about the compensation and benefits. We want to do a bit more complex things. We have more countries. And then, oh, our employees are screaming. They want to have more development plans. We need to train our managers. So your headcount will shift over time, um, depending whether you're a growing or a more stable company. But the 5% for the next of the end of the year works quite good. That's a really interesting topic that you just covered. The 
almost like the cycles of the growth of a company. You've experienced obviously startups. I saw you were advising a lot, a, a big business. So what would be a cycle for you? So how does it start? I would say obviously it starts with like a founder or the co-founder, so two, three people. And then, you know, usually when I deal with startups, I see they go between five and seven, then it's like 12, 13, then it's like 20-ish, and then 40-ish. Yeah. So what are the cycles from your experience and what are the biggest like pitfalls? I mean, at one point you even mentioned doubling from 25 to 50, which is actually something like we went from like 23 to like 42 or something like that. Yeah, so so can you, yeah, can you share, um, like these common things and the pitfalls at each stage that might pop up from yeah. your perspective and experience, of course. Yeah, and I will do a bit of generalization, right? Because like it, it depends also how old companies are and uh, uh, etc. I think the you you have the very early stage that uh, is always interesting because as a founder you're pushing to get out of that phase, and I think every founder is always looking with uh, deep love back to that initial phase that they love the most. Um, and that's basically like the basement phase. You don't really need to be in a basement, but like where you have this crazy idea that likely not a lot of people believe in. That's why you're the first one in the market and only your friends are so crazy to work for hardly anything day and night on your crazy plan, right? So it's not a diverse so you can achieve a lot because homogeneous teams are more easy to manage. And it's not diverse because all the people working there are basically your friends, right? So it's the whole similar bunch. And then you start growing and probably that's still the friends of the friends. Like it's more informal how it grows out. And then at one point you have like your prototype, you have your proven thing. People are going from beyond beta users to oh my god we get real users we get like friend referrals oh my god this might be a thing like you go from your angel investors to maybe a first uh, seed investor and then that investor comes in and that seed investor tells you great i see a lot of opportunity you're amazing i'm with you but now we're gonna accelerate you already work 24 7 so you're a bit like accelerate to what And then you get the first push that comes with the money because all the, the money that you get in different funding rooms come with the different pressure, right? So and that's then the first Can you also mention like the headcount at each stage? Like how many people are we talking? Yeah, so this might be uh, actually when you're with, could be around between 15 to 25 people. Depends a bit like how many uh, uh, interns you calculate. And then that's when you get your first could even be like I, I know people who even go to their series a with five to six people right so it could vary um but when you get your first real seed vc in um you're probably in that smaller realm of like around 20 and that's when the excitement and the push comes in where there is the narrative of like you now need to double people because at that moment in time and the investors are not wrong about that Probably the one thing holding you back from scale is the amount of people. Like in that phase, more people does likely contribute to more output. There's somewhere that doesn't work anymore. But like in the beginning, um, uh, it does work. And 
that's also the first phase where you're probably gonna hire your first recruiter because those first 20 you got for your via your worth of mouth network um, and your cousin who didn't know what to do is the EA and she does a little bit of the HR admin at the moment. So that's it, basically. And there you get your first um, uh, recruiter in. That's a very scary thing because there's a scarcity in recruiters, but someone knows someone who knows kind of recruitment. Um, and that's when you start your first uh, wave. And that will continue to your next round. And now you've entered the world of living from round to round. Because now every investor wants to see a bigger round coming up. So every year, year and a half, you will likely have another investment round that depending on your equity story comes with a different pitch. So either you at one point in time, I don't know when that is, it depends on your story, you will have sold that you are going cross borders. And that was really cool because it looked so cool on the pitch deck, right? And the numbers are amazing. And then it's like, woo, they gave us the money. And now we have to go. <laughs> How, right? Um, we need people on the ground. So you will go through all the excitements in the different phases. Um, so it will be the international one. Then, of course, what also comes, by the way, with every phase, probably you will have that around 50. You will have that again around between 100 and 150. And then you will have it again at 250. And then you will have it at 500. Is that your management team is not suitable anymore. Really? Because the people in the beginning who helped you in growing the teams then all of a sudden you're doubling it, but it's quite different to manage three interns or to manage three, man three managers with different teams, right? There's already a big difference between managing interns and managing professionals. That's the first wave that people need to go through. Then for managing professionals, you go to managing managers. So you're managing people who manage people. And then you become from a manager a leader. So you have a functional responsibility with a vision and a roadmap and an outlook and a full responsibility. And then you can grow even to executive level. But those life cycle phases normally in your career take 15 years. So how are your best university friends going to do that in three years? Right? And that's super painful because... Even though we all feel the reality, it's your loyal body who's still with you. And now that you've grown so much, you know you need to hire above them. So those will be the, like outside of the people scaling phases, the organizational and the international phases. This will become the next painful thing of like, what is that composition? Because that comes with a lot of very close relational drama and that comes especially in the early stage because as founder you have a very deep connection beyond being colleagues or employees in the same company how uh well two side question there how do you have that conversation then with those people and then um well from my perspective it's always like this loyalty thing that's what you said like this deeper thing it's like they were there and they were the reason it built how do you have that conversation that they're gonna get like this boss and then another question that always kind of pops up for me 
which makes it kind of hypocritical. How come you have to hire them, like someone else for, for this new position uh, that's going to take them over? But you as the founder, like for instance, or like a Mark Zuckerberg, like he gets to go all the way to the billion dollar CEO, but then, you know, all his friends don't. Uh, what's different about the founder? Yeah, so this, that's actually very, the, the two um, uh, topics to it. How do you address, so first the first part, how do you address this topic? It's super difficult and really, really painful, right? So it's one of the things that um, uh, uh, Anna and I guide a lot. And this is also where you have the, if you're at a stage where you have a senior HR leader, the HR leader needs to help you because this is not a one conversation that you're having. You need to go on a journey with that person to making sure that you get to a tailored outcome that works well, right? So there are, I've seen scenarios where actually the friends liked the startup phase also more, right? So they didn't even like the phase that the company was going into, but they were still loyal to the company and didn't want to let go because that company became their life. But they intrinsically also felt like I fit earlier stage way better and we, we keep on growing out of it, right? So... And a lot of your early stage friends as a founder might actually have the ambition to uh, found their own company. So I think one of the, the scenarios that I've seen work really well is like if you got the opportunity to get some money out of the funding rounds yourself as a founder to do some really small investments in your early stage people for them to be able to start the business that they always wanted to start is giving acknowledgement and reward to what they've done, what they have accomplished. You create an alternative scenario where you still keep that strong connection together over the fun of a starting business. And don't forget that there's a really elegant story to be told because there is always an ego aspect for everyone, not in a negative way. But of course, there's also people don't want to lose face towards the company or to the outside world, that all of a sudden that company that you've been talking about and work day and night, that you have to leave, right? So you need to make sure that there's an elegant story for the person, but also for the person to tell externally. Um, another piece could be, that if people have that in the future to say like, okay, let's see what alternative job we can find in the company. Um, and another advice I would have is like, if they stay in the company and they will stay within the team, so they will, will really be a person above of them, make them part of the recruitment process. So, and make sure, and that's like your HR team really needs to push for that. Then you also really need to come in with very senior profiles. Right? Because this person needs to realize when they're talking to that person that they feel, oh yeah, this now the next level is coming in, right? And that's exciting me, but it makes me because a lot of the times people find it difficult to accept because you don't know what you don't know. So if that company is the first company that you've worked at and you've always done the financing, and now your friend is telling you, I need a professional CFO, sometimes with the CFO, especially it's pushed by the investors. And that person feels like they have never experienced a different level of CFO. So they're like, what's not good with me, right? So then you need to start to let them know what they don't know and expose them to the other people. Um, and the last advice I would have is connect them to other companies where it already happened 
and that those those I always call them the non-founder founders because they are the very early stage employees and they feel like they are a founder even though they are not really a founder. But like connect those people because every company knows that group of people, right? You always know who that are and connect them to each other because especially some of those who have already gone through that like five years ago or eight years ago, um, they can also say what's next, right? And they now look back on it in a very different uh, way. And take your time, like start the conversations early enough so that you have like half a year or a year to get through the desired outcome. So I, I don't know if there was an answer to yeah, first that's part definitely your... an answer to the to the first part. What about the second part? How how do you not? How is it not hypocritical? that the founder gets to move on in the next levels. Yeah, so this is super interesting because, yeah, I agree, like Mark Zuckerberg is still there. I I would be very interested to see how many people thought he shouldn't be there. Um, and what you see is that some of the founders um, uh, create, and actually Mark Zuckerberg did that as well, what they create is this like second person who in reality is operating the business and that they continue to be the figurehead, right? So let's not forget that founder-led companies, in the end, the true DNA of that company is that person, right? So they are very much at the core of it. They very often have, especially PR-wise, uh, cultural-wise, like still have a very strong role to play, that unfortunately, that first employee doesn't, right? You were there early stage, but it's not the same level of credibility because it didn't come from your brain. Like, it's not your child in the end. But wh why do you think it is different? Um, let's say you have, you know, the founder, and then uh, a month later, you hire your first employee. Um, like, why is it different that the founder, even at a billion dollar company, if it keeps rising, I mean, look at Elon Musk as well. He also has CEOs in place. But like yeah. when he walks and does the PRs and everything, it's somehow different than when that CEO does it, um, even though like the CEO was there a month later. Um, what do you think from your experience knowing people? Why is the founder so different? Because the, the, the idea and the entire business was initiated by this other person. And therefore, it's their idea, right? Even if you start a month later. Like if you were part of the idea creation and you start a month later, you probably should be part of the founder team, right? So that's where there is a, there's a difference. And then also later on in all your conversations with the investors, investors especially in the very early stage, invest in the idea, but most of the ideas change quite significantly over time. Uh, they very strongly also invest in the founder team. So in the beginning, they very often can't even leave because the, the people who invested, invested because they believe that that person has to drive and the stamina to really push it forward. Um, in the scenarios where the, the founder then stays, they remain the face of the company for the, for the founders, for the investors, um, sometimes also for employees, right? That the employees bought into because they believed that uh, founder really, really felt for it. And then you see like Mark Zuckerberg 
hired Sheryl Sandberg basically as an experienced leader to run the business. Same in Google with Eric Smith coming in, right? I think, I do have to say, I think that those scenarios are exceptional. I think in reality, what very often happens is the most likely scenario is that at one point the founders are so attached to this because this is what they created, right? It's not something they joined, they made it. And that, that is like feeling-wise even a higher attachment. That then the investors step in the moment that they've outgrown. And, um, and there are a lot of scenarios where you see that the founder might be running out of debt like that friend, but they literally own the company. So as soon as they don't make that move, it's not going to happen, right? Um, and then, but then even then in those scenarios, the path of those conversations is longer. But that, those conversations in the background between the investors and the founders are very often also happening. Like uh, I think that that's in most scenarios happens at one point in time with most of the companies. And then you also have a small uh, group of people where the founder is feeling it themselves. Where the founder is saying, like, hey, we're now becoming so big. This is not what I want. And like very uh, interestingly, that's also when we're asked to help is that when by founders who say, oh, my investor board is not ready for me to step down yet. My employees are not ready, but I feel I'm running out of debt and I want to be out before that moment hits. So can you help me guide and massage that process, talking to board members and to facilitate the conversation of me finding a different role in that whole uh, scenario? So the complexity is not less for a founder. Um, uh, it's just because of the majority stake that they very often have in the business that it either happens at a later stage or it comes with a higher complexity that has a longer time to solve. That's uh, really interesting. I never thought about it that way. Maybe an added question to that then is um, from your experience, when do you do you see or when do you know that a founder has the capabilities to grow that business to the potential hundreds of millions? Is there certain characteristics that pop out? And at the same time, are there certain characteristics of founders that are not capable of doing that, that they maybe they can listen to this interview and think, oh, yeah, I am actually more of an early stage type of founder. Uh, what what would those types of characteristics be? Yeah, it's very um, different, difficult to say that in one answer, especially because um, it really depends on how your company is going. Like if your company is growing very gradually, you can just develop with the company. And in general, um, uh, founders are very capable to push and to adapt to new situations. So, th so they grow with the business already steeper than, um, than average, I would say, like in their self-development. It's only when sometimes companies, especially companies in, in uh, hyper growth, yeah, then you really actively need to work on your personal development because it's just almost humanly impossible to keep up with that development, right? Like there's a limitation to what you can keep up with. Um, and then the other thing that is challenging is that 
if that happens very quickly in your company, in say like three, four years, the other complexity is that in the beginning you were fighting windmills, everyone was against you and you should not listen to anyone and just trust your own gods blindly forward because all these people are just noise telling you that you cannot do it. And then you arrive in the next phase where people like your HR leader are going to tell you, you need to be more open to the opinion of other people. Listen to them, right? Like it's part of your development journey. And that's very difficult, right? It's, it's like that shift is so big that it's also difficult um, uh, to make. So I think having those regular check-ins with yourself and just asking yourself, am I still happy? Um, do I still have the emotional resilience to listen to other people? Or is the job getting so difficult that I don't have the bandwidth to hear other negative or challenging feedback? Because that also happens, right? Like sometimes when the challenge becomes more difficult, um, uh, like people always have these comments about leaders that surround themselves with yes-sayers. And... I would love to say to those people, go stand in the feet of those leaders because the challenges during one day are so big that there is no headspace to have people making it even more difficult, right? So I'm not saying that that's the ideal situation to surround yourself with yes-sayers, but there is also a human understanding why it happens, right? Yeah, because there is, there is there is not enough headwind coming anyway, right? Um But it's a good check with yourself as a founder to think, am I doing that? Because of course, deep in downside, you know it. You just need to take the time to self-reflect on it. And then the last question to ask yourself is like, is that moment coming up? Right? Do I, um, do I, and then do I want to anticipate and control the solution to avoid that scenario? Or am I going to ignore that this might be a problem along the way and I've seen different scenarios I have to say of course the most elegant way for everyone is when you are openly exploring that like not to all your employees and not to your management team but like with maybe with a trusted investor or a, an executive coach that you might have that you put this actively on the calendar preferably even two years before there would even be an action link to it, will probably make it a very smooth and elegant transition where you can continue to play an important role to the company in a way that is, suits you really well, rather than ignoring the topic and with over every investment round having that little nagging voice, oh, when will, when will it happen to me? Right, because yeah. to most people it ends that other people are going to tell you that you were too late. <laughs> True. Uh, I have a question to that. Then, what is your opinion on further education of founders? Um, I was uh, uh, lately looking uh, as I got approached uh, around the idea of an executive MBA. What is your opinion about those things? Is at that point is an education a waste of time, or are those things legit? Yeah, I, well, I never think it's a waste of time. It depends a bit on on your personal need to your personal interest. Um, I think the one thing that is really important 
to invest in and they're still I'm still surprised that I see a lot of founders not having that is you need to have a trusted executive coach that's only your executive coach not the same one that you have for your management team but with who you can very transparently having the conversations and someone who at times can also join your management meeting facilitating it or just observing it um, can have ask feedback of your direct reports because they will be more honest to your coach and then helping your coach go through it. When you're in a founder's role, it's a very, it's learning by doing on a day-to-day-to-day-to-day basis, right? So while an executive MBA will always benefit you in life, and it depends on the type of executive MBA, whether it will help you in the day-to-day. Like for an executive MBA, you also need to have a lot of headspace to do it, right? So in combination with leading a company can be really challenging. So you need to be ready in your life to do so. But having an executive coach who's really your personal person to really guide you in that day-to-day to making sure that you're catching up with the development that you personally need and give you the right challenge or feedback or help you digest um, uh, yeah, the, the more the naysayer uh, voice or the feedback towards you. That is super important. Uh, and it's very easy to ignore, but like you can't start that soon enough and every euro that you spend on it is well spent. So so what is a good executive coach, especially young founders yeah. transitioning into a properly operating business? Um, I had this conversation um, a couple of episodes back. We had the CEO of Blinkist on. Um, he had a, quite a hyper growth as well. And uh, he got me onto the idea of an executive coach and he meets with his executive coach about once a month. Um, so from your perspective, what's a good executive coach? What do you need to look out for and how often do you have to meet? Yeah, so make sure that you really have an executive coach, right? Because there are a lot of people like I'm not an executive coach and I also wouldn't be a good executive coach. Like I can be a good business mentor to founders. Um, and we can talk about solutions, but like the, an executive coach is extremely skilled in um, uh, observing and basically will hardly talk, right? And ask a lot of questions, right? Um, they're a bit more pragmatic than a psychologist before people, I know how founders think about that when you say they hardly talk, what, what do I pay for? Um, <laughs> But like, so you have really good executive coaches, the one who fits you most, like I would really check in your network, check references, like, because there are, it's, um, there are a lot of people calling themselves an executive coach, like I would be critical about it, and I would be having more, I think it helps when people um, are an executive coach who have a truly business background, but I would verify if they have a business background that they also have a real coaching background and that they're not based on their previous executive role starting to become an executive coach because you need different skills and different trainings and years and years and years of experience to become a really good executive coach. So, so on the one side with business experience, 
Do you mean an executive coach would be somebody who has started a business and exited a business? And, or, yeah, or failed or a business. That, that like the success of the business is actually not relevant. It's like it's about maybe it even helps when they fail the business. It's about that someone can emphasize with the stress and the loneliness and the, the dynamic of the whole spectrum of the, the high differentiation of stakeholders that are pressing from very often in conflicting ways on you and you being in the middle and who recognize that loneliness. And you don't need to have a success, like the success of your business um, is not relevant for that pattern and that dynamic to recognize that. Um, in general, I would say that, that an, uh, an executive coach, therefore, is much older um, because they should have gone through that loop, matured, that they should, as an executive coach, have nothing to win. Like, they don't need to have an ego anymore. They don't need to... Um, uh, they don't need to be your executive coach to get a status from it or anything, right? Like, it's already past that. So I personally prefer... Um, the the late end career type of coaches because it's not about whether they understand your full reality of the dynamic or or whether they can understand that you go to work walking on sneakers it's about that dynamic was also there 15 years ago right so it's about the pressure and and your lonely position in that um but they already went through a lot of self-reflection to different loops, have seen different founders. Um, uh, and that could be a really good profile. How often you see them really depends on uh, the challenge that you have, right? Uh, if you do it ongoingly, like what the, the Blinkist uh, CEO said about once a month, makes absolutely sense. But in times where it might be a bit more tight. You might want to might have periods where you talk to them every week, right? Or you might say, okay, once a year, uh, what I just mentioned, I want you to talk to all my direct reports and get the feedback because they will never give me the feedback completely. And I want you to give me back what the sentiment in the group is, or I want you to observe some of my leadership meetings. So there might be pockets where you intensify that by your needs. Yeah, I, uh, I really like that answer. Very clear. Um, this also kind of then brings us to, um, you know, this is very much about the founder developing as an executive. But what about uh, your managers? How do you, well, it's not even in the beginning, you don't even have managers, you just have people. But at one point, you need them to step up as, as managers. Yeah. So how do you tr train people to become managers it, like do you send them to an MBA do you buy like some online course like what is the best way because you've mentioned um, like uh, a couple of uh, questions ago uh, like the training of managers how does that process work yeah so there's not really a school to become a good manager but on an organizational level it helps when your managers are getting the same techniques and the same toolkit, basically, of soft skills, how to manage. And why that's important is that there is a certain consistency for employees. So if they go from one team to another, that the coaching approaches, 
the performance approaches, that they are similar. So I'm not talking about the process. So it's not about this is our rating system and you need to fill out this form in June and this one in January. Very old school. Um, it, it's about, okay, what model do most of the managers use when it comes to mentoring or to coaching or um, um, what are the expectations that we have for managers, right? Do we expect our managers to have a weekly one-on-one -on -one or a bi-weekly one-on-one -on -one or don't we care, right? And um, that's one piece what's important. So that's therefore you want to set up at least a, a, a kind of practical, tactical training on those soft skills of management for your managers. And that can be either new managers, but also people who are ma new managers in your environment so that you refresh them on um, uh, similar techniques. And then the second piece is that it's important already from the beginning that you start managing your managers as a community. So if you're... Managers will always come with scenarios that um, uh, are new. And especially if you don't have a large HR department that the managers get coaching from the HR team, it's important that they also help each other because the one manager might have experienced this before. So if you make sure that even cross functions, because then functionality is not that relevant, start becoming this community of managers, they will have this opportunity to really provide that peer support and that peer mentoring. But also you prevent that informal network will solve a lot of issues that you will never see, but you will feel the issues when the network is not there. So issues like, oh my God, manager uh, Jan just stole my best employee out of my team by offering a job at a coffee machine. We work at the same team, right? We work at the same company. That happens everywhere, all the time. If your managers know each other really well, they will have those informal conversations, right? Um, the alignment on exceptions, like unfair treatment of employees, always you will always get feedback that employees are um, uh, feel treated unfairly. But in 90% of the um, situations, it's because team A does something different than team B. Right. And it's really important that if you manage them and address them as a community, so make sure that you have, it can be monthly or even once a quarter, have a meeting with your managers and you repeat again, this is what we expect from you. But also we give you access to this information, making sure that they have the same information, that they know that the same is expected. You reduce, it will still happen, but you will reduce that chance. And then the last piece of that community aspect is also they are your scalable communication methods. Because in that basement phase that we talked about before, communication was super easy. You just stand up and say, everyone, pizza slice down. Let me tell you the strategy of the next two days, our long-term strategy. And then, um, uh, but when you're growing even to 25, all of a sudden, three people were not there. Someone just joined, someone just left. Like people get half-baked the story, like the whispering to the coffee machine completely changes the story. So you want to make sure that you have this one moment where you always brief all the managers at once and say, I, want you, I need you to repeat this message to the employees. I will tell it at all hands once, 
but I need you to continue and I'm giving you the heads up so you can ask me now more questions that we can't ask in a group. And that habit, you should already start when you have your first, first few managers because it's a scalable setup that you can do for a long time, but you, you need to make, you need to build rituals and traditions around it so that community feels a community. And support that community, create a people manager Slack channel where they can share all of those things. If you have one HR person, it makes them scalable because then managers very transparently can ask questions and they can answer that, but also you as a leader team. So that focus is much more uh, important that you help them guiding them in the job. And then a last advice is um, only make people managers who want to be a manager. Right? It's very How easy. How do you know if they want to be or they're just thinking? Just they ask want them. I, I've seen so often managers who would come to me and like we would already have thousands of escalations that people say it's a horrible manager. It's clear to everyone. And then the only time the conversation takes place is when I would have a random conversation with the person and would ask them like, hey, what do you want to do in your careers? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I promised I would take on this management job because someone needs to do, manage the team, but I don't want to be a manager. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that opinion has not changed, right? Probably in the first instance when we asked them, but the person felt pressured because their manager was overwhelmed because they were having 15 direct reports and something had to happen right now. And he's the right hand and like, please come on, you just take part of the team. I need it, right? I need to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, Don't definitely do it. made those mistakes myself as well. Um, Everyone um, does. Like that's why it's cliches are always true everywhere. So don't feel guilty about it. But it's like, it's always a good reminder. Like it doesn't work. You mentioned at the first step, soft skills from the managers. What soft skills are we talking about? Because at one point I started looking into these skills, but like what skills are we talking about? Obviously public speaking, but there's much more that comes to a manager. So could yeah. you maybe give an overview? Yeah. So, um, uh, for example, you have different methods for, um, coaching techniques or mentoring techniques or how to hold difficult conversations, um, how to have conversations about compensation. That's a tricky one. Like, how think, do you have those conversations? Yeah, yeah so um, uh, when we provide training to managers, we, we like N26 now is a larger uh, company, but also like when we help uh, smaller companies with it. And this you need to repeat with managers all the time. Don't make any promises. Never join the emotion around it. Make sure that you have the full context of the compensation uh, uh, conversation. Go in really well prepared. Like, how is it reflected to market? So you have different steps and techniques. It also depends on where your company is. Like an HR person or external person can always help you with that very easily to set that up. That's not a big thing. Um, if I would like with you, for example, I don't know all the details of your company, probably if we talk 30 minutes, I can give you the full layout of that training, right? So, um, but some of the key things around never ever acknowledge 
Um, um, uh, how do you say that? Like statements that people make in a first conversation conversation. So for example, when you get a new team member or, or you get a, uh, who comes from a different team, very likely one of them will say, and it are always your best people. I have three other offers on the table and widely so because my previous manager, he offered me this raise and no one ever did it. I always get all these promises when I came here, working here. I took like a pay cut of like 30%. It was 10% when we were negotiating, but it, that percentage, and they really feel it that way, but like feeling-wise, the percentage get bigger, 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 bigger. We just hired Marie from the outside. She's even getting a higher salary. Yes, I know her salary. Um, and all of these conversations you get. And then the worst is that the first human one is like, oh yeah, that sounds horrible. I will look into it immediately. Yeah, that you should never do, right? It's like, okay, that's a lot of information that you're sharing with me. I can make you one promise. I will look into those facts and get back to you in full context, but I want to prepare that. So I need you to share with me the full overview of all those details, what you stated now, and send me anything that you have on paper from previous uh, commitments, anything that I can look back into. And then I will have a look at your compensation package, how you're rewarded now, and how that relates to the market. Because then you can prepare your conversation to say, yeah, Marie, you came from Salesforce, but we are not making the profit of Salesforce. So you knew that when you came, we cannot afford that, right? So then you can take the conversation next time by explaining how much, how you view the person, where they are in the development, and why you think that the compensation is fairly compensated, and how you can take now the conversation to, but let's see how we can get you to the next um, uh, compensation level which should be aligned with your development and I see a lot of growth opportunities and then you can turn the conversation around to okay we're going to give you a stretch assignment where do you want to grow to what should your next level be but as soon as you acknowledge like you can always you can you can take the information and you should do that of course very respectfully you can be respectful for the emotion that the person has you can acknowledge their emotion I see you're upset yeah, I'm sorry to see you upset. I don't want to see you upset. I haven't seen this information before. I want to review that first. I also want to see what the context is. Like, But as soon as you acknowledge one of the statements, especially it's very difficult with precessors because you might have heard 10 stories about what the precessor did wrong. So your first inclination might be, oh, another thing that person did that I can clean up. But as soon as you acknowledge it, emotionally, it has been acknowledged. And then you can only disappoint the people. Like if you give an indirect promise of acknowledgement or that a compensation or a correction takes place and then you cannot live up to it, uh, you cannot repair that for years. And you can always afterwards, you can always give a correction or a gift. But don't give the gift away too early. Like nice the, the way you explain it is so empathetic and so nice actually oh. i was just thinking <laughs> i would love to work with you <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's so nice but uh, so sorry i cut you off but what are more soft skills um uh, that that uh, the toolkit for a manager needs to have 
Yeah, I think a lot is actually around the communication. So it's with difficult conversations, like a person is not performing or the company is growing too big and, and have different requirements. So one really difficult thing with um, uh, especially younger companies is, and at SoundCloud it was always explained like a balloon. I really like that one. You have like these different levels. So if the balloon is this small, going from level here to here is this. But then the company is growing and the balloon grows and grows. And also then the gap between those levels is way bigger. And that is really painful. So what you get is that you will have phases in your company career where that person has been on a development to become the next level, say from team lead to a manager. And every time that they're almost at the finish line, the goalpost is moving, right? And that's super frustrating, but you will go through those phases. And then the problem is that you cannot move away from it because you are trying to hire other managers from the external market. And when you approach them as a manager and they look at the profiles just to benchmark where will I be positioned in the company, they will look on LinkedIn. What profiles are a manager? What, oh, all your managers have two years of experience, then I want to be a director. Right? So you will dilute your titles if you don't hold that bar, but you also don't want to lose those people. So there are a lot of those scenarios where it requires a very tailored approach, where either the conversations are with people where you do want to move on to different paths or different teams or different type of roles, which, is, which you want to massage over multiple conversations. Um, and the other piece is like, when you need to give a negative message to your top performers. Because you can't always give everything to what people want, like taking them to that journey. And um, those are the type of skills I would expect in a management uh, development program. Which brings me actually to a really, um, like a requested question actually, uh, about the beginning and the end of that cycle. How do you onboard people in a way that makes them feel like this is the coolest company ever because um, I kept having conversations also in the podcast uh, of people that that enter a company and that first month it just makes them a lifetime fan and they stick around for 20 years yeah so how do you onboard a person but then at the same end uh, how do you fire a person and there I remember um, like two years ago or a year ago now, I uh, took a course at Stanford about how to start a startup, funnily enough, uh, yeah. given by cool. the, the, the director of Y Combinator. Um, and I remember on the third um, class, I think it was like the founder of Airbnb or something, like Brian Hesky or something. I know uh, he started explaining how to fire people. And I remember that being one of the most emotional lessons I ever got because uh, I never knew how to do it. So my question to you, um, how do you onboard a person and how do you fire a person? Um, yeah, so with onboarding, I agree with you. Like that when onboarding is good, it can be a lifelong um, fan. Your onboarding does need to be very well aligned with then the experience also in the company, right? Um, so what I think in the end, it's in the recruitment process, by the way, it's with onboarding, but also with firing. I think everything is around storytelling and taking people on a journey, right? So 
onboarding was very often underestimated is... Oké, okay, we have on, uh, onboarding. Oh, we're getting really big. Oké. Okay. Nou, they come in on the first day. Do something nice. Can we order nice coffee and some uh, croissants? And then get every manager in and they can tell each about their department. So they know everything about the company. And then the next day, Jill is sitting next to him. Let Jill explain the job. And he's onboarded. The, everything goes wrong there. Because on day one, the person is just having... 10 super boring presentations that are maybe three are super funny because the presenter is really funny, uh, really fun giffies in the presentation. Um, but there's no cohesive stories. The presentations are planned around availability, not order of content. And it are 10 individual presentations, which is never fun to look at, right? Of course, people are still happy because it's their day one. So at the end of the day, they get a scoring card and they still give you a seven or an eight out of 10 points because it's the first day and you're not going to give a negative score to your new employer. But if you take a little bit of time and you think about what, what is the information that our people need at different phases in time in the life cycle career. So let's map out that first three months really take onboarding as three months, right? And, um, and how can we take the information from the recruitment process? So the person came on a full day on-site, has spoken to everyone, got like a whole presentation and a storyline there. We also have still all the feedback from the process. So we also know the person was really good in understanding our business, but not so good with the financials. Okay, maybe that person needs an extra conversation with the finance team to be helped, to be set up, that they understand the financials really well. And then you can still have a generic first day, but that is really well-crafted around a storyline that you're going to say, okay, we're going to take the person historically through it, and then we're going to take them to the bubble of the customer, so with client groups, and we're going to create a simple video with... Um, Some customers, why they love the product and how people... And then someone comes in from UX and product that links it to those videos and says, and this is why we are going to do that, because in the future we want the customer to say this. And then we talk about the internal customer. But really, like, the whole day, you should know what is the cool story you want to tell and the journey you want to take them on to that first day and then map the presentations And you need to have one person curating that massive ridiculous deck that everyone has as their onboarding, but to making sure that it all has the same look and feel. And that can just be even an intern in the HR team who then also curates and makes sure that like, the energy levels throughout the days are good, like can do some extra stuff with like having a... a Um, a Kahoot quiz in the middle that they pick up the knowledge and the key things that they need to pick up. It's also a nice momentum to underline some of the facts again. And then mark the group, again, coming back to that community feel, make sure that they feel the community group. This is something that I really learned from Dell. I still know who were in my onboarding group when I joined Dell. That is like 12 or 13 years ago. So... That's even longer, I think. Um, but I still know that group because we had all had lunch together. At the end of the day, we had like drinks together. So that really, and we were all working in different teams. 
But it really helped because when I needed help from PR, I onboarded with the PR manager. So I would quickly give her a call. So it also makes your company more effective and it will give people that extra buzz and they will help each other. Then making sure that they, like all the obvious stuff, like make sure that they have a body from a different team so that they have someone they can easily go to when they have questions. And then outside of the company onboarding, then fulfill based on your feedback from the recruitment process if you think that they need on certain topics additional information making sure that that's well-crafted um, and make sure that the team has a guidance or a simple guidance on how to create the right onboarding for your new joiner. Because just sitting next to Lisa is really no fun for three <laughs> days. Like, and here's the access to the Google Drive, those really cool documents. Just go through it. If you have a question, let us know. Like, great, you're paying me for it, but it's not exciting, right? And... Also, with some of the things, think about when do they need it, right? Like you can listen on your first day to two hours presentation from accounting, how you can reimburse uh, the cost you made to your first business trip. You're not going on a business trip on that first week, right? So do that at a later stage. Think about, also think about the different methods where you can do it, like Instead of having the poor accountant guy present the boring presentation every month, you can also make sure that you get a fun video, right? It's a one-time investment, but that people can always go back to. So having it as a whole story and really putting effort in it will really help. Yeah, I, can, I can actually vouch for that. In my main company, we've done multiple of those types of videos um, explaining yeah. certain departments within like a company, especially for onboarding, this can really, really help. So that's uh, thank you for saying that as well, because uh, it reminded me of that. Um, I want to um, I have like more questions, but I want to kind of move on into the story because we're only halfway into the story, but you're so interesting. So uh, we kind of left off. Let's go back, you know, an hour. <laughs> uh, but we kind of um, we left off at Dell. You were just finishing up Dell. Uh, and then you, from my understanding, you started traveling. Can you yeah. tell us more about why did you leave Dell uh, and, and how did you start traveling? And tell me more about like what, what you learned during your travels. Yeah, I can fast track some of the things. But um, um, yeah, so with Dell, like the, the super interesting time, but very intense. And the big reorganization I was talking about was the last um, uh, part of it. And after that, like, I really wanted a break um, uh, for a bit. But also, like a friend of mine, um, uh, uh, who's my um, uh, partner in crime when it comes to backpacking and traveling, we had been to Brazil and Argentina before, and um, we had been dreaming like, oh, maybe we could do like a, an, um, uh, a backpack hotel or, or something in tourism in Brazil. We had met people there on our previous trip, so naive, but um, uh, let's just go there. And for her, it was the right time to cancel her job. For me, it was the right time. So then uh, we went off together. I went back after a year. She actually uh, stayed for many, many years and uh, uh, in the end also started her business. But when we just arrived, um, we started off in uh, Peru. We had some of the things really well planned and a lot of it not planned. Um, <laughs> we started in Peru to learn Spanish. 
I still still stop, uh, talk Spanish as a uh, five year old, but um, uh, it was a good fun time. And we did a course there, uh, a TEFL course to be able to provide English lessons because we thought, okay, that can, then we can generate money wherever we are, um, uh, giving English lessons uh, in South America. So we stayed there for a while. Then we traveled, of course, our, our path was to go to Brazil to explore there if we can uh, set something up. Once we get, like, I mean, most of it are just um, uh, fun backpack stories. Anyone who's ever backpacked in Central South America will You can, have you can a, share some. I never backpacked there. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in the end, those, the fun part of that is like, It's a bit of a wildlife, right? Like you're just planning maybe one or two days ahead. You never know where you're going to uh, uh, end up. You meet international people who are all in that mindset of like freedom. We don't care. We were just there. Oh, that sounds so cool. Then we will go there tomorrow. Like that's that's basically the life um, uh, that you have. Uh, and of course, you're also looking up like the the um, highlights and yeah, you you it's it's lower cost, so you are much more in the community um, uh, how you're living, but you're also very much living with the backpack community from place to place and recommending uh, each other places. Super fun. Uh, in some places, we stayed a little bit longer. We stayed a while in Santiago, trying to get. Um, a job as an English teacher because we loved it there. So we were like, oh, maybe we can stay in Chile for a while. And then we started applying for jobs, very serious, making resumes in that hostel, also quite funny. And then we got a job and then we were like, oh my God, I'm not going to stay here for six months. <laughs> we got the whole commitment uh, issue. So then we continue traveling. Um, and in the end, when we arrived in uh, Brazil, of course, the whole wild plans of like, we're going to start that business became super complex because, uh, yeah, it's very naive to think that like when you're not Brazilian, that you just can start a business in um, uh, Brazil. And it would be much more about, okay, then you start working in a hostel and hope that you can manage at one point in time. So we said like, okay, let's... Let's continue traveling. We want to see more of Central and South America. Um, uh, and then let's travel for a year. And after 10 months, we decide, are we going... At the end, we will go back to Brazil anyway, because we also flew back from Brazil. Um, but like then 10 months ahead, we would tell to each other, like, are we going to try and start something there or not? Uh, and this is when I... like It must also have been around the 10 months. When after 10 months, I... Uh, I felt like there's an end to my travel journey. Like I started to miss the different context. So you get you get the free life, but you're also living in an alternative space where the reality or the the the, the even politics or economics, like you start following things less and less, and I was missing that part of it, right? Like for me, it was really an, an, a phase in life and I was just ready to go back. So then we agreed like, um, okay, um, uh, I go back after 12 months, but like basically I will drop 
her off in um, uh, in Rio, and then see like also making sure that we set it up that she's like all okay and has a job there, and um, um, uh, then I'll go off to the Netherlands. So in those last two months, I did let a few people know like I'm coming back in in two months, and this is also when. Some of the career opportunities uh, came up where people came back like, okay, if you're coming back, are you interested in this? And and Tom Tom was one of them. So then after 12 months, I went back. And this really cool story about this because it was during the World Cup. And um, the Netherlands and Brazil had to play at the same day, not against each other, not yet, but the winners would play each other. And then on my last day in Rio... And I was flying back from Sao Paulo. Rio and Sao Paulo is very far away. It looks very close for us on the map, but from one place to another, it's a little bit further than Amsterdam, Rotterdam. Um, but then on that day, first, I think, yeah, first the Netherlands played. So we went to Rio Beach in orange shirt. A, a Brazilian friend of mine in the Netherlands happened to be in Rio as well. So we saw him there, it was super cool. And the Netherlands won. So we were going ballistic, of course. Super cool. Celebrating the Rio. Then Brazil played. Brazil won. Then entire Brazil went ballistic. So I partied all evening in Rio to celebrate that win. Then went by taxi from Rio to Sao Paulo. That's kind of insane. And then flew back to the Netherlands. But because of... uh, Slept one day (laughs) to recover from that... Um, but then because Brazil and the Netherlands won, they played each other. So I saw all my friends again in Amsterdam in a bar watching the Netherlands Brazil and the Netherlands won from Brazil. And I can tell you, like, we never really won a very big prize out of 88, but it's still way too long ago. But this felt for us like we won the World Cup. So I had the whole party at the Brazil side that you need to have on the Brazil side and like the other party here. So then that's also a good way to look up when, what year this was. Um, but that was amazing. And then I came back, interviewed with people, clearly interviewed as a backpacker, as my later manager uh, would say. But I did get the job at TomTom. And then my manager said, okay, so you just chilled for a year. So can you start like next week? And then all of a sudden I was like, oh my God. And I was like, can I start a month later? And then I flew back for another month to Brazil, knowing that I had the job and started later to first have another <laughs> month in <Seriously>? Brazil <laughs> to start. So, so, after so you the... went back to Amsterdam, you were in the Netherlands, you got the job and you're like, oh, maybe not right now. Let me go back to Brazil for a month and then I'll start. Yeah. What did you do in that month? Oh, no, that my friend got a job there. I just partied and chilled with her. <laughs> um, the job at TomTom, when I looked it up, was a, a mouthful to pronounce. Like global oh, yeah. director. What was your job there? So basically, um, uh, when I first joined, I was the uh, HR responsible for um, uh, the tech area. And then um, uh, I took on a broader role that we changed the structure. And I was responsible for the recruiting team, learning and development, and what we called organizational development. So we had um, um, a very small team that helped with like large change programs. And what happened uh, back then is like there was the whole transition to agile. 
um, and we were changing the whole uh, company. The member even and so the the uh, I have people in my team who were managing that project, and um, I remember one of the team members coming up to me and saying like, "Hey, um, I have a really weird question, but like, we want to buy a car, and I was like, a car." Yeah, a car that you can like assemble yourself, but we can use it for the agile training, uh, which of course was fun because it was Tom Tom, but it was like completely out of any budget I had ever approved in my life. So there we really had to go to the founders who loved it, got it approved, uh, and they worked with that uh, uh, car for a long time to implement agile. You can now not, I think all companies already have agile, but that was then a big transition uh, that we did but the most important thing that happened for me was like with um Tonton I got the opportunity like LinkedIn started to become more booming in uh, Europe and then I got an uh, uh, LinkedIn started this they called an advi European advisory board product advisory board now it and I got on it now super fun basically it meant that Tonton paid the highest bill I think but um It gave me the opportunity to every quarter meet up with other European recruitment leaders um, and getting previews of uh, LinkedIn's offering. And once in a while, they would invite us to Silicon Valley. Um, and there, all the global people were there. And they, they created a LinkedIn Top 100. We went to San Francisco. Super fun, but that was my entry to seeing all the new ways of working really the silicon valley vibe of working and that's when i realized like okay at one point um uh, i really like as a next step like when i leave tom tom i want to go to a company that is not public yet pre-ipo um that has that different vibe and tom tom is very uh young and dynamic from a corporate perspective. Uh, so I thought like, okay, that will be a very easy transition. Uh, and then I spoke, then I was approached by SoundCloud. I, oh yeah, in my mind, of course, I was going to San Francisco, right? Because that was where I was going. I was not really expecting that my next international adventure would be the Germans. But um, <laughs> I got approached for SoundCloud and that was so cool. And I first, when I had the first conversations, which was over phone, Uh, I thought they were actually an American-based company. Yeah, I also thought that when I first uploaded my first, like, whatever, I had, like, a podcast or something to SoundCloud, I thought it was Silicon Valley. I didn't know it was Berlin. Yeah, and they did have an, an office in San Francisco. Later, that moved, uh, we moved it to uh, Los Angeles. And um, once I worked there, we actually made a dual headquarters between New York and Berlin. And I, th I think that they might in the future go fully to New York. Um But back then, like the headquarter, headquarter was really in uh, Berlin. Um, but like the opportunity was so cool. And when I visited them, it's a completely different world. Um, and really like, yeah, very different um, experience. Also one I had to get used to, I have to say, in the beginning. When I first, so I took the job, super excited. How many people to... was SoundCloud at the time? Um, I think... 200, 220, something like that. Wow. 
And by the end of uh, your career with uh, SoundCloud? Yeah, when I, like, coming back to the firing piece, but um, uh, uh, at the end, when I left, was when we sized down the company also by 40%. But uh, before, and that's when I put my own name on the list as well and moved on. Um, uh, but before that exercise, I think we were with 400 people or something. Okay, wow. So it doubled. But so what was the biggest learning lessons uh, that you got from SoundCloud, which was obviously different to TomTom? Completely different. So yeah, I entered a whole new world. Like it was my um, world of like, so with TomTom, I did have experience with like certain committees, with like um, uh, the supervisory board, but that's all of public companies. And now I got introduced to VCs and investment rounds and valuations and uh, and uh, equity programs, but also uh, so that like from a learning point of view is just a whole new world that you enter. So that's super interesting. Like in the beginning, I was literally in conversations where I didn't understand 80 percent. Um, and that you're like, if I now ask all my silly questions, they are just only answering my questions <laughs> the entire meeting. Maybe I need to educate myself separately. Um, but um, uh, an important thing as well is like um, the community of startups and scale-ups was something I was not used to. There were meetups like every evening and we were hosting them in the SoundCloud building. In SoundCloud, we have a recording studio and we had like a bar area where we could host all the meetups. And like in Berlin, uh, SoundCloud is one of the, the top employers. And definitely back then... Uh, it was like, that was the hotspot. That was where people wanted to come. And we were also very generous. So everyone could host an event um, uh, during the week. So the whole vibe around working was very different. People, people were friends with their uh, colleagues. Like, I remember that the, uh, called the happiness survey, like, a, uh, like an engagement survey, just an employee survey that you do. Uh, once in a while, like, how happy is everyone? One of the main questions was, do I have friends at work? Which, for me, was a bit like, coming from public companies, it's like, yes, I have friends at work, but that's not the key thing as an employer, right? Like, am I happy at work? Do I have fun colleagues? And there, but that was also the dynamic. We spent day and night in the company, like, but also very loose and informal, formal. So that changed a lot. And um, it increased my network tremendously and a much more fluid way of working. So much uh, exposure and insights also to other people, other founders. It's a very generous community in introductions and sharing knowledge. Very different vibe um, that I learned from that. And also, like, when I uh, decided, like, okay, we're moving on from um, uh, SoundCloud, I wanted to take a bit of a longer break in between. I thought, like, okay, this is my time for a break. Um, uh, th this is when I got in contact with N26, who I was already following for a few years. And here the founders, I, I did already, like, just informally help founders, especially if they were looking for the first HR leaders. That's also how I got in contact with N26, that they wanted to know, like, okay, what, 
what type of HR leader do we need to hire? We're now 250 people, but we basically have 400 open vacancies for backend engineer. We don't know what to do. And um, it's like, fine. oh, yeah. And you think that's your challenge? Let me tell you what your challenge in the next two years is. Not that 400 backend engineers. And, but we got really fun conversations. Um, and Max, one of the founders... And I spent so many days in front of a whiteboard discussing how it would look like, etc. And that was just so fun. So it was also very natural to join that. So in the end, I didn't take... That was the moment where I was ready for another sabbatical. Um, but I didn't do it. Um, and I joined the end at six and I didn't regret that, of course. Like, that was a super experience. For the people quickly, um, I mean, I know N26, but it's very fintechy. Could yeah, you explain what N26 yeah. is? Yeah, so um, uh, N26 is a uh, mobile bank, so um, uh, one of the neo banks, as they would say, like, for example, in the Netherlands, you have Bank, or in the UK, you have uh, also Monzo, and N26 is one of the bigger ones, um, so I've been with N26, so uh, um, I'm leaving in four days, um, but I, when I joined, it was a little bit less than 250 people, and we're now with 1,600, um, so it's completely exploded. Like, we were all in Berlin. Um, uh, now, uh, there's an office in Sao Paulo, in New York, in um, um, uh, Vienna, in well, London, we just uh, closed, but in, in Paris, in Milan, in Barcelona, Madrid. So, amazing journey. Like, that has been such a roller coaster. Uh, and a lot of that, that again is a very different journey. So with while SoundCloud and N26 are similar in maturity and um, uh, VC environment and uh, also even maturity in um, uh, investment round levels with SoundCloud, like music streaming is very difficult, is a very difficult business. But it was always an upward battle. So we, we went through years where there were a lot of lawsuits around, like our content platforms um, uh, also responsible for the content on it, etc. A lot of we had a lot of headwind, uh, and we constantly had to fire up the employees of like we can take on another battle, and. We were lucky because music is a very emotional product, so people really felt engaged, like had a purpose-driven motivation of like, we want to make this platform work. So even if you can pay me, I'm going to work for this, right? Like that was the vibe that we came from with SoundCloud. And then with N26, it was like the wind in the back, which is still a challenge because you need to run, run, run. Otherwise you triple over your own success, right? So it's still a big challenge, but from a complete different dynamic. Like, and impossible to take a break, but just because it just continues and continues. Yeah, so much fun. And there, then your network continues to grow even more in, like, the startup scene, scale-up scene, um, founders. Like, N26 really has a very, very, very entrepreneurial culture. So most of the people that leave N26 start their own business. The founders are very generous and, and invest in most of those people as well. So then you get, and, and the community is still very connected. So all the alumni help each other as well. 
So you get in a very rich world of um, uh, exposure to also VCs and, and entrepreneurs, um, which then adds um, to, to round the resume up. Um, uh, to me starting my next journey, which is starting with a friend who's also been exposed to these scale-up uh, organizations, to start like a boutique venture consultancy where we do consultancy and advisory services for um, uh, startups and scale-ups, either via through VCs or directly with uh, founders. How, can you tell more about like this journey? Like why did you decide to start it? like four years into uh, your last career, like this career. Uh, why your own business? Why this business? And what, what are you trying to achieve with it? Yeah, so interesting, like uh, SoundCloud brought me to Berlin and Berlin brought me a different additional view in life that I hope everyone experienced at one point in time. Um, because this, if I would have stayed, in the Netherlands, I would have a great life, right? But here, and I have a very warm connections and like I have warm friends here, etc. But here, if you have a crazy idea and you say, oh, maybe I one day want to do this, people say, yeah, 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 ooh, but, and they will tell you all the reasons why it's a risk and why you should not do it, right? And in Berlin, there is, there's a, I mean, the city has a complete, different background for a long time like the city was always having bad figures while the rest of Germany is carrying Berlin but you have like this big art scene and creative scene and and there is a deep culture of creators and there if you say for fun at the bar you know what would be a cool idea everyone says so why don't you do it right that's the only question so you always have to defend why you're not doing your uh, entrepreneurial journey. That's also why I think Berlin is booming with uh, startups because you can't have an idea and not do it. Like people will remove all your blockers and then the only blocker is you. So um, I knew like at one point I want to, that's, I mean, it's contagious, right? So you also want to found something and start your own business. And because everyone is doing that, you also start having these ideas, how would I do it? What's important to me? So that was one thing. I knew very quickly with this friend, we already want to do something for like 10 years. So we are always talking about what would it be? We both knew we want to work with founders and entrepreneurs because it's just fun. It completely links to how we are as personalities, like a lot of in energy, but also sometimes way too loud, um, um, informal, like just go. Um, and the last thing that we really wanted is uh, to contribute to uh, the position of women in work in general, right? So even if it's a small drop, and one of the things that we've both been exposed to is that the uh, the dividends of capital in the startup and scale-up scene is completely skewed to male founders. And um, what we said is like, okay... We, we, wanna, we can get paid in cash or in equity, but all of the profits that come out of it, we will reinvest in companies with uh, female founders to do our little, our little contribution to uh, a fairer system. So that's how it all came together and it became this over many, many glasses of wine. So, so what is it then exactly that you'll be doing? You'll be just consulting startups? Uh, yeah, so term? there are two 
core things that we do. So either it's traditional consulting, so that's like an end-to-end, clear, like the helping, a, giving a solution to a problem. That can be how do you skill your company, problems with your leader team, but it can even helping founders who uh, don't want to be the CEO anymore, helping mapping out like how is the journey going to be, all those different things, but all in the people and organizational piece. Um, or we take on advisory roles, and those are in general uh, paid in equity, is where we are, uh, a lot of companies already have board of advisors, um, uh, and for example, an advisor of Kenyo, also already in personal name. But if you uh, get that agreement with Invested, you get both of us. So you get the more HR and the very strong uh, recruitment leadership uh, part in one advisory role um, that we do for a selective group of people. And then it's and the business mentoring, but also introductions to VCs and potential clients. And that advisory business is mainly focused on work tech because there we add value also from a product positioning and market fit. Yeah, I mean, I can talk for literally hours uh, yeah, so about it's, this. It's very but, uh, long. Who yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm. Uh, I uh, want to wrap up because we're now like at two hours and a half or something like that. But oh my God. Yeah. I, I can literally talk for hours. I would love to invite you again uh, to talk about your SoundCloud and N26 journey because there's so much more to share there. But uh, I think it's just best uh, to wrap up here. So I wanted to ask you, um, I wanted to ask you if there is something that you still want to share with our audience, some important lessons out of your journey, uh, and also like a red carpet, like share where they can find you and everything. Yeah, well, first of all, if you made it so far, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you deserve a drink. That's a very long talk. <laughs> Listen to it in pieces. That would be my biggest advice. Um, but I appreciate it. Um, you can find me um, uh, on the normal um, uh, channels, uh, LinkedIn, but you can also find us on our website, invested.team. Uh, uh, please do connect uh, on uh, LinkedIn or um, uh, on Twitter, EM van Boven. Um, but if you look at Noor van Boven, you will find me. Anyway, and I always love to interact. And the only advice um, that I would have is like, always take a little bit of time when you're ready for it to uh, reflect and really think about yourself. Like, am I really acting now in the strengths that I have, especially when you're um, uh, a founder and also when you're a founder, like, don't be afraid and make sure that you organize the help that you need because you're only human. So even you as a founder cannot do it alone. I love it. I think that's a great, great way to close off this episode. And uh, hopefully I'll see you on the next one then. Thank cool. you. Thank you so much, Lova. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.